0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. Right now we're listening to a track called Theo Goes Away by the Spanish artist Jass. She's playing at today's art festival in The Hague, which begins on September 21st. This week's exchange is with that festival's founder and director Olaf Van Winden. He's something of a notorious figure in The Hague and the European festival circuit as a whole. Growing up in Kenya and coming of age in the Hague squat scene, Van Winden helped put the city on the map in the 2000s, fusing club culture with the then-emerging field of media and digital arts. He's of the view that culture should move out of institutions and into the public domain, and he's often organised works that disrupt and alter public space in thought-provoking ways. He's not one to flinch from confrontation and often asks difficult questions of those in power which has seen him arrested and even beaten by police various times in recent years. Speaking to RA's Holly Dicker on the eve of this year's edition of today's art, he tells the story of his transformation from a DIY instigator to a key cultural figure in the Netherlands and Europe at large. As always you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on Soundcloud at ra-exchange The exchange with Olaf van Winden is up next
1: in The Hague with today's art director and founder Olaf van Winden. Olaf, you were actually born in Kenya. Can you tell us about why you decided to leave and why did you choose The Hague?
2: Yeah, well, indeed Kenya. Uh, it's a while ago uh, and I think the decision to leave was not uh, only my decision. I was still uh, uh, with my parents back then. Uh, I'm born in Kenya, uh, and uh, the rest of my youth I lived in West Africa. Uh, After Kenya we moved to Togo, to Ivory Coast, to Mali, and then to Burkina Faso. I went to school in Bobo Dioulasso and in Ouagadougou, I did French school, and at some point my parents decided to go back to Europe, Um, in this case Netherlands. My father is Dutch, my mother is French. Um Mainly also based on, uh, I mean for educational reasons, uh, to continue studying. And then uh, since my father was working for the Dutch government, the government is here in The Hague, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is here in The Hague, um, we uh, moved to The Hague. So there I was as a 16-year-old kid, uh, raised in Africa, uh, suddenly in, uh, in, in Western Europe, which was uh, actually quite a shock, uh, I have to admit. So when I had to make some choices here uh, to follow the rest of my life, I was like, okay, what uh, what can I do to uh, what will guarantee me a way out of uh, of the Netherlands and what can give me a way back to the rest of the world? Um, so I decided to study hotel management, and The Hague happens to have a, a very famous hotel school. Um, so I signed up and uh, I uh, I studied for four or five years here in The Hague, uh, and that's the reason actually how I came here.
1: And uh, when we last spoke, you told me that around this period you uh, started squatting, basically. Can you explain why squatting is quite significant in Holland, particularly in the 90s, uh, and why it's changed since, and also where you were living (laughs)
2: Yeah, the, the squat scene was interesting because I, I was studying in hotel school, which is the complete opposite world of, uh, of the squat world, for example, but. Uh, this was quite an elite school and quite closed. And I, I noticed that this school was actually completely not connected with, with The Hague. Um, and The Hague is quite a special city. You, you, there is a lot of talent. There is a lot of activity, but it was especially back then quite invisible. So I started digging and I, I found that there was a whole scene in the, in, in the squat scene in The Hague. Uh, back then there was a, a huge, um, uh, squatted building it was called the Blaue Aanslag. Um, um, and I think there were more than 50 people living there.
1: Sorry, so the blauer anslach uh, in English translate to the blue envelope because it's an old tax building, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. The, the old tax building, uh, the tax office, when they sent us mail, it's always in this blue envelope. So this was the name of the building also. And a lot of cultural activities were happening there. There was a, there was a restaurant, there were people living, there were studios, there were events organized um and uh, this inspired and actually this was this was feeding the whole scene um and at that time uh, our major uh, club or or uh, stage here in the Hague part van Troy was closed for renovation uh, there was a completely new building being built so actually there was nothing really on the Um, on the surface and everything was happening in empty buildings in very irregular uh, spaces and uh, also in in, in quite irregular timings. And this inspired, you know, at that time there were so many empty buildings uh, and there was such a need also for people to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, I think, actually the the basis of the the, the squat uh, law that we had in the Netherlands or back then there wasn't a law that it was actually allowed to squat. Uh, it's a bit of a gray area, but uh, if a building was empty uh, longer than one year and, and there was not real destination for that building, uh, there was a possibility to squat it. And if you would enter the building, if you are there 24 hours and you can prove that you sleep there and that you can heat there and that you can uh, feed yourself there and that it's locked from the inside, then you had the right to, to stay there.
1: Interject. So I think in 1971, uh, squatting was given legal protection. And I think as long as you didn't, um, there was no, uh, evidence of breaking in or violent entry, then everything was okay
2: yeah, and also, I think that there was a bit of an unwritten rule in squatting, like you would not squat from private people. Um, you know that that's already if if someone loses his house or cannot pay it anymore, that, that this was a, a bridge to fire, but from uh, empty corporation buildings and things like that, uh, so really trying to use the space uh, in another way. Um, and this came to an end, I don't exactly remember in two thousand. Set in. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly on that night when the, when the squatting law came, uh, we decided to squat an old theater here in The Hague, the Asta, uh, which was empty for many, many years, which is in the city center, which was built as a film theater, um, actually a perfect place to, uh, to build a club or to build a, a creative spot in the center. Uh, which was 50 meters from where the city wanted to build a huge new cultural center for more than 200 million. Uh, at the time that they were cutting the the culture, so it 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 seemed like they would build a top notch building, but not have enough budgets to to fill it. So our statement was like, okay, there is a space here right now. It's it's you need very little to reactivate it. Uh, instead of spending all these millions on a new building. Uh, and this was on the night also that this law came uh, that it was not allowed. Uh, so we made that statement also. And it was, I think, in the news as the last squat of the Netherlands. Um, uh, within no time, we uh, were able, with with the whole community here in The Hague, to organize a huge party. Everyone was coming with a sound system or an installation. Someone had a couple of beers left and fridges came. And, and within half a day, they were, the whole city was dancing here.
1: So speaking of squat parties... The Hague is particularly famous for one, Bunker Records. And, um, I believe you met Guy Tavares as a 20-something in a squat, in the squat that you were living at. The, uh, what's it called again?
2: Um, I, I was not living there myself, but uh, uh, Guy was living there in the in the Blauwe Aanslag. Uh, uh, we were doing uh, uh, other parties. We were doing actually drum and bass parties with uh, my former partner Eero Faas uh, in an old squatted basement supermarket. Uh, these parties were called Drumme and uh, Guy was living in the Blaue Aanslag and, and uh, uh, yeah, I met him there when, when there was one of these parties, uh, one of the, the old school uh, uh, bunker parties.
1: Um, can you describe what was happening and who was playing?
2: Um, I don't know who was playing anymore, but uh, probably Denny Legoveld was was there, Orgeletronique was there. The setting was a very dark, humid space. Uh, I think one strobe that was uh, operated by Guy, also still back or or already back then, uh, with different frequencies, a smoke machine, and then mud until your uh, until your uh, your waist actually. (laughs) 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 And uh, uh, yeah, but the greatest music. It it was raw. It was it was you know uh, the, the sound system was always a bit crappy um but there was a, a, a special energy and, and um you know the fact that it was underground and that we you know that that's a bit of the the, the essence of a club culture is actually or, or a club it's a, it's a meeting space it's a meeting place and there was a big need of these places because there was nothing else so we we created ourselves
1: did you ever meet um if interference at this time
2: yeah, IF was uh, back then he was a bit of a grumpy guy. He was uh, against everything.
1: What do you mean back then? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, in the years I, I also noticed that it's a very sweet guy <laughs> with a lot of humor and everything. Uh, yeah, I think he was, uh, he started with with the record store, Hot Mix, and, and uh, the Bruine Planet, and Naast Asta, which was actually, this was a venue next to the Asta, this building that we talked about uh, just before, the last building uh, that we squatted. On, on that night naast Asta and um, yeah uh, the, the interesting thing is that these scenes were actually totally not connected back then like uh, IF was doing his thing uh, Bunker was doing its completely own thing and then there was uh, a clone uh, in Rotterdam which actually bundled these kind of things as, uh, as a distributor and with the record label
1: Take us back to these drum and bass parties um, why drum and bass? Um,
2: it was a style we were interested in. Um, uh, there was uh, quite an active uh, skate scene here in The Hague, and the skate scene was very related to drum and bass. I think also we saw electronic music coming to Europe and to the Netherlands uh, at that time, uh, house and techno, and, and uh, we always looked also for different styles, and drum and bass sounded very fresh back then. Mm-hmm uh and also other organizations were doing other types of music so we found our niche in this field and uh it fitted really well to that basement atmosphere what we were doing there uh it was in the main shopping street in the middle of the city the the grote Marktstraat. um there was no sign there was just a blue door but people were coming from belgium from everywhere just to find this blue door (laughs) on these irregular parties
1: um what sort of acts were you booking at that time uh, we worked a lot with uh, with, with
2: local acts, but uh, we also managed to have Groove Rider there and uh, uh, LTJ Bukem and these kind of things. So, yeah, th- a lot of the UK scene was coming here, uh, but there was also a very active scene here in the Netherlands, in, in The Hague, in Rotterdam. Uh, and it was a bit, you know, drum and bass, breakbeat, uh, this, this whole uh, fresh uh, sounds back then. Yeah.
1: So when did you decide, okay, now it's time for something bigger, let's try a festival
2: yeah. well actually when, when we had that basement um, which was an illegal place um, we started to communicate with the city, uh, like hey uh, you know this is a place in the centre of the city, the city is in real lack of something like this, there's a bad image here can't we legalise it can't we start to rent this building because uh, then we can seriously invest and build on something
1: um, because you were also, um, as well as throwing parties in this space, you were connected with the art academy and hosting exhibitions.
2: Yeah. I mean, since it was such a great space, it was 1,000 square meters in the basement. Uh, it was an, in the center. It was a great space for uh, um, for artists to, to exhibit. And um, we worked closely with the Art Academy then, um, with art science and interactive media design. And this was the space where they were presenting their final exam exhibitions. So it really started to have a function. And this gave us, like, we, we, really, we were really inspired to start talking with the city. And this was actually the first contact where the city was uh, quite supportive in our activities. They didn't own that building, so they couldn't really help us in in that sense. Uh, But they started to fund our activities a little bit, even though it was in in a squatted place. Uh, But back then I was still studying. So at some point I I graduated and I I left for a career. Uh, I went to Los Angeles and I started working uh, first in an internship and later as a job uh, for Hilton, the Hilton Hotels Corporation. Uh, not in a hotel, but in the headquarters. Um, and I was working for the loyalty program, Hilton Honors, the uh, program where you get points and miles. And I was quite successful in, in that job and uh, I got a lot of opportunities uh, from the top management um, and and my career really began to develop internationally. Um, I was allowed to uh, actually develop the whole strategy of the, the loyalty program for Hilton, which was also kind of a new thing uh, uh, for the hotel industry back then. Now loyalty is becoming bigger. But there I was, you know, living in Beverly Hills, having uh, having a, a real good salary, having a great job, uh, traveling around the world uh, almost on a weekly basis, and I started to feel really unhappy. First, like, wh- where where do I belong? Like, do I'm you know being raised in different countries already in Africa. Uh, uh, LA is not the most social place on earth, especially when you're not there all the time. So after one year, I decided to really step out of it. And I, I, I also saw like, okay, a corporate career is, is not difficult. If I want to be successful in this field, it's easy. I can always jump back. Uh, but I decided to, from one day to the other, to, to quit and to go back to The Hague, uh, because that's the city where I was actually the most, active, you know, in Africa I was I was way younger, but here I, I developed uh, a community around me and I felt that the city was in big need, like there was so much going on, but so invisible mm-hmm. and everyone was complaining and I was like, okay, it's just a matter of doing it, so maybe I can use my experience in the corporate world to really start building something here. So I came back um, to The Hague uh, and this was in uh, 2001, I think. Um, and we organized our first event um, uh, on the Malifeld, uh, a big square which is used for demonstrations, also in the city, uh, in front of the station. And the idea was to bring a festival of electronic music, which back then, you know, there was a, this was the time that Dance Valley started and these kind of big dance events. Uh, and we w- already then we wanted to bring a more alternative sound. So I we, we had a, a festival with five stages and there was one electro stage with IF, with Lego Welt and these guys. And uh, this was not the case in all these other dance festivals but also i wanted to do something more like uh, i felt always like uh, treated as a cow when i would go to these dance festivals like you know these uh, dirty toilets and everything and i wanted to have something more like that you could have proper food that it was well designed uh, that actually the 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 design were made by artists that you would have installations and i i saw also a new art form arising um You know, the traditional cultural world is, is really segregated. You have the, the visual artist is in the museum and the, the performer is in the theater. But with the new technologies and things like that, there was a new art form that was more hybrid and more crossovers between sound and image. And, um, uh, I didn't see that happening yet. So I decided to integrate that in, in the, in the concept. So we did our first festival. It was, uh, it was a massive success in terms of attendance and, and reviews and people like, uh, who was showing up? But it was a complete disaster for ourselves because.
1: Sorry to interject. So this was called Sound Vision. Yes, sound Vision. Yeah,
2: uh, as the name says, the the combination of sound and and vision. So a, a big uh, uh, failure for us because we made really all the mistakes we could make as a beginner. Uh, I think we had 25 colors of wristbands and the bars didn't know which one uh, were um, allowed to drink for free. So at the end, everyone drank for free and everyone came for free. And it was like this free party that everyone is still talking about.
1: Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but um, wasn't the biggest issue um, to do with sound
2: I mean, the, the, what, what happened actually uh, then is, you know, when, when you have a, a successful festival, but when you uh, lost money, the only thing you can do is repeat and, and try to solve this problem. So uh, we started talking to everyone that we owed money to, and we said, okay, we're going to do a second edition. However, the uh, mayor of The Hague back then, Mr. Detemann, uh, decided that uh, due to the uh, war, war in Iraq... That he needed his police uh, people, his police force, to secure the the institutes, and uh, uh, because there's many international institutes in The Hague, like OPCW for chemical weapons and the criminal court and things like that. So he decided us uh, uh, that we wouldn't get uh, our permit uh, to do it. So I was uh, this was in real trouble. Um, uh, because we couldn't do it and it was an old guy he, he really didn't like uh, this type of music and and uh, uh, still back then I think electronic music was a bit demonized uh, it was uh, related to all kind of bad stuff from that uh, uh, perspective so immediately we decided to go back to go inside and to then if it's not possible outside then approach the cultural institutions because we also saw that the cultural institution had a big problem in, in attracting a young, young audience I once went with my mother to a Netherlands Dance Theater premiere. Um, and, uh, it was, it was totally abstract. The music was done by Ryoji Ikeda. Uh, but when I looked around in the room, there was only people above 75. So I was like, what? Well, there's a big problem here. Why don't we combine all these things? Um, and this uh, allowed us to, uh, in the same year we moved inside. Um, and we ha- we were able to organize the festival in more than 25 venues, uh, varying from clubs to empty buildings to museums and big concert halls.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're now talking about Culture Nacht, which was launched in 2003. Was the concept the same or how did it change? How did you develop from sound vision to Culture art beyond being inside? Well, actually, uh, Kulturnacht, uh,
2: uh, literally uh, translated uh, uh, Night of Culture, was also based a bit on the model of Amsterdam and Rotterdam. They were doing the museum night. Um, and um, we, we saw that model and we were like, okay, that, that's interesting, but it's very top-down. It's the museum opening its doors. Why don't we turn it around? We go further than museums, because I was really pushing on the multidisciplinary already back then. Give us the space we want to program. We want to bring what's actual and and interesting right now in your spaces. And and we want to bring your content to another place, like the Netherlands Dance Theater, the the really state-of-the-art in contemporary dancing uh, at that time. We were able to collaborate with them, but not in their theater, but in a nightclub, for example. So this mix of disciplines and this collaborations with uh uh with all the institutions here uh gave us a, a very strong platform to continue and uh the first and the second year uh, that it happened it was it was really successful and the city saw it and, and also were really interested in it because, uh, like I said before, um, the image of the Hague was always really bad for, for a young audience. I remember when there was nothing, we would take the night train to Rotterdam and then come back, and the city here was empty.
1: Is there any reason why? Is there an explanation? Or what do you think, what's your personal take on that? Why it was like that?
2: Uh, I think the hague is a, is a very formal city you know it's it's the the uh, political capital the ministries are here the the um, whole government is here all the embassies are here it, it's technically the second uh, United Nations city in the world uh, third sorry after New York and Geneve which uh, with, with the criminal court and uh uh these things so it's it's attracting a lot of expats it's it's actually a beautiful city it's it's very green there's nice buildings and and there's the beach and everything but it it doesn't have a university um so there is uh, maybe a bit less young people or, or when they are finishing high school they leave to another place and uh yeah i think there's i don't know it's it's a bit the the um, I think that the city was also not very supportive in, in, in creating spaces and um, had a different mindset in how to, uh, you know, they they even came up with the city marketing slogan, The Hague International City of Peace and Justice. That's not super sexy. Um, <laughs> and, and even if you go to that theme, which is still actual right now, we, we had that theme, we attacked it several times in our festival campaigns, uh, but a while ago, I, I, I even wrote a letter to the mayor, and I said, you know, if you want to be a city of peace and justice, why don't you create create a safe house for uh, uh, Edward Snowden or Julian Assange? You know, why why don't you say, okay, come to The Hague, you will have a fair trial here? But uh, apparently, uh, peace and justice is something else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what was the, what was the mayor's response to that?
2: Uh, that uh, it was not uh, uh, her responsibility to uh, take care of uh, of Julian Assange and, uh, and Edward Snowden and uh, these kind of things, whereas I think, well, then, then don't use the don't don't uh, market your city as a as a safe place for these
1: people. So we'll come back to that attacking the peace and justice thing in a bit. So you had a couple of couple of editions of Culture art. and then in two thousand and five decided to change the name to Today's Art which you are currently operating under today. Why the change and was it anything more than just a, a name change?
2: Yeah, the change was um uh, for several reasons. Um first, you know, like I said Museum Night, Culture Night, it really had a context in the Netherlands. Uh, um it was it was based on uh, on a on a specific concept that people knew here. Being raised internationally, uh, already my ambition started to grow further and, and to see, okay, what's possible also outside of The Hague? Uh, how can we build collaborations? Uh, I started connecting with uh, Club Transmediale back then, now CTM in Berlin, uh, asked them if we could have a collaboration. Um, very quickly I got in touch, uh, with the scene in, in Detroit through Derek May, um, and And we were talking about the collaboration there, and I realized that the name Culture Night" in Dutch has a context, but in English it didn't sound really appealing or or, or something that uh, would work. So this was one first reason to to think about a new name to be more uh, to, to have an English name or something more appealing on that sense. The second thing is that The Hague was uh, for many years uh, hosting the North Sea jazz Festival, famous jazz festival. That suddenly decided to move to Rotterdam because there were, there was a better building. They maybe received better funding in Rotterdam. Anyhow, they decided to leave and, and this was uh, actually a big fight between the two cities. Uh, they started competing on, on these kind of things. So the city made a call and they said, okay, this festival is leaving. Let's make a call for, for new initiatives. Um, and I was pretty sure that they would receive only new uh, new ideas for a jazz festival. And I was like, you know, this, this, what's the point? There is already a world famous jazz festival twenty kilometers away, and between The Hague and Rotterdam, I think there is only one windmill and maybe three cows. So it's it's really close. And uh, but but for us, an, a chance to uh, to write a nice concept. And and uh, then I wrote this. Uh, uh, this plan, uh, and it was called Today's Art, and uh, the subtitle was Festival for Art, Music, and Technology. I saw, really, technology coming up, and I was like, okay, this, this is for me really the, the the center point of all these things, like in music and in art, I see that it's playing a, a crucial role. So I wanted to build a festival around it, and uh, so it, it was called, and I wanted it to be very urgent, like, not too pretentious of the future and what's happening tomorrow and, and not too much referring to the past, but just what's happening right now. And, and the name Today's Art came. Um, so that's how, uh, why we changed it.
1: Mm. Take us back to this idea of um, multidisciplinary, which is something that you've had from the start and is still very much an important strand in kind of everything that you do. Why, why is it important to have a multidisciplinary approach to culture? to cultural programming. Yeah, like,
2: like I said, I, I, there was this new art form uh, uh, rising through uh, through the use of technology and artists are, are always um, quite used to uh, adopt these new technologies quickly and, and see what they can do with it. More and more, uh, you saw the crossovers between these disciplines. Uh, there was not really a platform for this. Um, and I thought it was really time to address you know art also in a broader sense than just art with a capital A but but maybe talk more about creativity and creativity includes all these disciplines it's uh, it can also be design it can be fashion it can be architecture so we got interested in all these things and and i really wanted to uh, to bring to an audience a program that would really uh, be that was diverse and that would inspire um and through the the new collaborations that we started by working abroad I, it was really also we felt it as our mission to our discoveries that we see there to bring it here and and club culture has always been i think that the center point of of what we're doing like electronic music club culture was the basis of has been the basis of uh, of the whole concept and club culture not so much you know that there is i think a different there is there is the discotheque and there's the club the discotheque is loud music and a lot of beer the club is is a social place is a place for gathering is a place especially in the 90s you know the the club culture in berlin uh these were places where where uh, philosophers writers politicians would would gather in a free environment and and for me also a place where a lot of innovation had happened you know the the visual culture with the vj culture back then did they, they, this created a whole scene um, that, I, that I wanted to uh, explore. And I always said, Let, let's not specialize ourselves too much in one direction, but let's try to be quite generic in all the direction and be very open.
1: And I think another important element to what you do is um, reclaiming and reinventing public space. You've had quite a lot of disruptive art pieces happening over the years. Can you talk about some of them and why disrupting public space, especially in The Hague, is so important?
2: Well, the, the first question is actually to, to whom belong this public space. Um, and, and I think it's us, the general public. It's it's our space. But reality is that actually it's, it's quite different, um, the way it's structured, the way it's planned and everything, especially city centers, I think... Uh, most city centers of, of uh, middle-sized or big cities in the world, they start to look the same. There is a, a monoculture going on. And it's all organized. It's all... Um, actually, the, the the square meter price is so high. It's all planned by project developers, and there's big economic stakes. Um, so every square meter needs to be sold. And to me, a pub, the public space is something different. It's something that we use where we don't need to consume and where we can be free. Um, and and this city specifically the the city center is is almost only shops so at eight or at nine in the evening the shop closes and everyone goes home and the city is empty mm-hmm. and then you need to put cameras and put police guys to secure this public space. Mm-hmm. Uh, here they were always afraid of the youth culture and the club culture, so they were pushing even these initiatives to the outside. And and then what what what's the end is a dead city. So I was always trying to to show the city also how can we use it differently? How can we uh, uh, inspire the people to come and just hang out? Uh, you know what what's very successful in most cities is is just a, a park. Look at Central Park in New York. You can just go there and sit there and. Uh, this this creates already an atmosphere. Uh, yeah, by using the public space and by disrupting it sometime. Or, or um, I, I always use the example. You, you know, the in in design it's called the elephant path. If if there is a park and the designer said that you have to walk like this, but people actually walk straight over the grass and there is a new path coming. Uh, this is exactly what i mean let let us use this public space and something else will come out of it because we don't design it from a drawing board from a, from above but we use it so yeah we, we tried to uh, we, we did some large-scale installations we once had a, a landing strip um, with 148 speakers facing the wall in the, over in the shopping street over a distance of 400 meters and this was a uh, uh, we created a landing sprit- strip with the sound of a Boeing 747 uh, running through that street every 15 minutes. Uh, one year we made a concert with 12 trains at Central Station De Hague. It's a final destination station because it stops, there's the sea there, and it's 12 tracks. And we approached it, we made a sound installation with it, the whole station was wired. Uh, contact microphones everywhere even inside the trains and actually the trains were symbolically the faders on the mixer yeah. so when they would come in and out this would amplify the sound huge piece uh, but super disruptive because this was done at the most heavy traffic hour of the day around 6 o'clock it was also the opening of the festival by the way but there were people uh, uh, coming back from their job entering this sound piece and, and people thought that there was a massive attack going on uh, uh, we did warn them at every station before there were volunteers going on the train and giving a flyer to everyone like, hey, you're going to enter in a sun piece. But also the, the, the first, I think, uh, um, Uh, Video mapping on a facade, Uh, it is considered as the first one of this scale. Uh, We worked with an artist, a Spanish artist, Pablo Valbuena, and he did a video mapping on the City Hall of The Hague, which is a a building by Richard Meyer, and and it's totally abstract, white, and and modular, so it was the perfect canvas to project something on it. But this was before there was software for mapping, so he he was there in a container for more than, than two weeks, mapping everything by hand, creating his own software. Uh, but this was a huge piece and everyone was really impressed by this um, so we tried also and, and the point was um, in this digital art, media art that developed further uh, back then it was considered very niche and, and quite nerdy and technological and, and I wanted to bring this outside not only inside in, in, in closed and dark spaces but to really bring art and creativity to the public space and to confront people uh, on, on another level
1: it's this idea of bringing together high and lowbrow elitism and diy which i think is another another element yeah well the, 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 i used uh, quite often the the
2: sentence you know highbrow lowbrow or maybe nobrow
1: i've noticed that's a title of a book on your bookshelf exactly <laughs> that's uh, that was that's a big inspiration <laughs>
2: Because we were pioneering in this field of media art and things like that, um, we became quite specialized. And and, uh, because of this specialization and and having a community of artists and followers behind it, in in 2011, 12, I was asked to become the director of the Netherlands Media Art Institute. So I went even in these higher arts fields, um, um, found a direction in there as well. But for me, it was always about connecting and, and bringing it down to... A simple level that everyone could understand. And, and that's also my critique to art. Like, uh, personally, I don't like museum. It's more like a mausoleum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really want to confront as many people as possible in, in the largest sense. So the public space is the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the public space is also sensitive. You you are uh, touching all kinds of uh, backgrounds and, and you have more responsibility. Uh, a very simple example, if you, if you have a, a painting or a photo of a naked woman in a museum, it will be considered art. If you have this in public space, there will be a completely different reaction to it. But then again, I think this, this does not necessarily need to be planned. Let, let people use their space, let people be creative in, in how they use the environment and things like that.
1: And has this sort of disruptiveness, this rebelliousness ever got you into trouble? Mm, yes, several times.
2: Um, I always uh, managed to get out, also. But um, I had quite some. Um, I have quite a history of uh, contact with police, and yeah. um, and 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 even um, have seen prisons from the inside. <laughs> um, first year was in um, in. Well, you know when you squat you have contact with police uh, and and when we uh, were having this squad, we we were actually in good contact with police back then in these years in in the hague remco has designed a a tram tunnel where they would have like two stations and the, the metro or the tram would go underground and like most of the building projects in netherlands it took way more longer than than they needed and it went five times over budget so this was uh, this tunnel was was empty for a long time plus it was built next to our basement squat and because of the build of this trim tunnel we started to get water in the basement uh, so we needed to put pumps and things like that so one night we decided to squat the tunnel uh and we made one party in the tunnel we invited uh, the media and the press and and people to come we said okay we do the music you bring your drinks uh, the police came, of course, within, within half an hour and, but we were in good contact. So we said, okay, don't put out your uniform and come and see and, and you will see it's, it's really great. They gave us the permission to continue on, one hour longer. So there was always that, you know, that there is a, it's a bit this cat and mouse game, but uh, you, you always stay within the limits. You don't bring people in danger and things like that. And it's all fine, but in um in 2009 we were uh, thinking of the the festival's programming uh, which as the name says today's art it, it's very on the act actual uh, things that's happening around us in the world and in 2009 was um, the year that the financial and economic crisis really kicked in on the world uh, there was a big problem with the swine flu uh, the elections in Iran um uh, just finished, and, and the, the, the young generation went into the street and protested against the result. So on the big global scale, there was big things happening in, in the direction of conflict. And a bit closer to home, uh, or very micro level, uh, we had our own conflict. We lost uh, half of our funding, also due to this economic crisis. And and thirdly, the city uh, I live in, in the city, we organized this festival, The Hague, um, is is where the criminal court is and is where the conflict management of this world is trialed so we decided to address conflict and and conflict is um um uh, actually we tried to address it in a very positive way we had a subtitle underneath conflict is the beginning of consciousness you you need a conflict before you start to realize uh in this that's the same idea like peace doesn't exist if you don't have war and and the city marketing slogan of the city is the Hague international city of peace and justice so we said in in the term of or in the idea there's no peace without a war we turned it around we said the Hague international city of conflict mm-hmm. the campaign was very powerful because we also realized conflict has a lot to do with power uh, so we made images of of very powerful leaders and and one was a dictator and the other one was a suicide bomber and both the images were my face, very photoshopped, and and the dictator was a mix of my face with Assad from uh, Syria, uh, and the suicide bomber was with all the symbolism that you would see on these pamphlets. Uh, and second, we um, showed we brought conflict very close to home, so we had a poster with a, a crater in the city hall, and we made little uh, films for YouTube where a plane was crashing into the Ministry of Culture and, and they were all faked with cell phone recordings and, and this was spread out over the internet. Uh, we even hacked the, the eight o'clock news at Lowlands where the, the speaker was telling the news and we put another image behind and another sound and people were really thinking that. So that there was a clear message in it. There was, it was also very clear that it was presented by Today's Art, but this campaign started to to go on the internet and the images of the burning city hall, the poster was hanging in front of the American Embassy, I remember it's a beautiful image, but uh, the the secret services um, uh, of of, uh, the Netherlands freaked out and and two weeks before the festival they arrested me with brutal force, uh, really on threats of inciting terrorism. Um, and then I realized, like, fuck, there's really a problem in society, you know? We, we live in this tolerant country. Um, but apparently there's fear. And this was also the time when right-wing governments were coming up. And, and, this fear in society was, uh, you know, me being arrested, the, uh, the, the, the interviews I had in, in the, in the police office or in jail were really on the highest level of, uh, um, um, I call it, it was the national coordinator of terrorism who was, who was interviewing me. And then we went all oh, oh, you know, and I had to, to look at my YouTube films on an old crappy bash computer <laughs> with a crappy internet connection. And I said, you know, if this is your research on cyber terrorism, uh, I'm not going to tell you anything. You're <laughs> going to find out yourself. I was released, and, and uh, uh, immediately, I mean, I, I still had two weeks to organize the festival, and I, I invited the mayor to come and discuss this issue because actually it was the mayor that put his signature to arrest me, and I didn't understand because I, you know, I'm funded by this city. I'm uh, uh, not famous, but people know me in this city for doing this. So, um, so this was the first time conflict uh, is the beginning of consciousness, and, and the year after, it 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 was nominated for the Dutch Design Award. This campaign.
1: Um, so, what was the outcome of uh, the discussion with the mayor at the festival? The the mayor um, uh, was very distant,
2: uh, and I started to realize that the problem was way bigger than I ever expected. The uh, this was a new mayor, uh, Mr. Van Arsen, and uh, uh, he used to be the minister of foreign affairs uh, and a couple of years before uh, during the war with Yugoslavia. And the Netherlands had uh, had, had uh, an, uh, well, quite a controversial role in Srebrenica. Mm-hmm. Since he was Minister of Foreign Affairs, he was very involved with this topic. And apparently, in that time, there was a lot of uh, infiltration from Serbia inside political organizations. While I was addressing the theme of conflict in the campaign, we also have had, of course, a program which was about conflict, and I invited a curator from Serbia to make a program with artists from Montenegro, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, etc. This program was political, uh, and we invited also the ambassadors of these countries to be at the opening, and some uh, quite left-wing journalists to be there and to write about it. So my campaign, plus this program, plus this thing with Sibrenica in the back, and this mayor that just became mayor in the city, and and had to deal with this. This was a cocktail that was very poisonous. And and when I asked him, he said, um, uh, "We will talk about this when you after your trial, because I don't know." So actually, a, a year later, uh, the trial came, and uh, and and it was uh, I was discharged, and and then. The mayor uh, stepped up to me and he did the opening of the festival afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he apologized in front of everyone. He said, As you know, Olaf and I had some rough beginnings, uh, but I really respect this festival. I'm happy it's here, blah, 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 blah.
1: How's today's art sort of, what's their relationship like now with the city? And I guess it must be another mayor now. I mean, the relation with the city is. Uh, um, I had a couple of other uh,
2: uh, contacts with uh, <laughs> with legal forces and police. The the one was w- with the squatting law when, when the, on the last night. Uh, of course, this was amplified because there was news around it. It was on the last twenty-four hours of this law. So again, the news came, and uh, you know you have to imagine at that time uh, I had a board because we are a non-profit foundation, and there is a board also operating. Um, the, the, the chairman of the board was the, the chairman of Siemens Netherlands, and, and Dan Roosgaard was also in, in our board. Uh, but these were good friends of the mayor, so every time they were shit with me, they would call each other, and they were like, "Again, you're what's 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 he doing?" Um, then the budget cuts came in, uh, in 2012, and there was a, there was a protest from cultural institutions because really a lot of institutions, also the big ones were cut for half and and some were even cut for hundred mm-hmm. percent. At that time, I was also director uh, of the Netherlands Media Art Institute in Amsterdam, and this institute was cut for hundred percent. So there was a protest. And on that night, uh, uh, people started, uh, on the night that the, the, it was a 24-hour protest, people started a big walk from uh, Museum Boymans van Beuningen in Rotterdam mm-hmm. to The Hague. So they walked in the night. And I decided not to walk, but I was like, shit, they will come here in the city. There will only be two shawarma shops open. You know what? I'm going to open a club or I'm going to make a party for the people coming. Okay. So we welcomed them in the club. They danced till the morning, and then we went to this Mali field, uh, this protest field, uh, for a protest. And I think there were 15,000 people. Highly respected directors of the biggest museums and and things like that in the Netherlands. Uh, this was on the day where they would sign the the cuts. So we went to the uh, to the parliament building, and we were sitting in front. And then the military police started to attack. And I was first in line, and I was completely beaten up. Uh, and jailed again, and, and uh, uh, with half-broken neck in, uh, in jail, uh, without, uh, and, and I didn't do anything. So again, I was trialed, and the trial came one year later, and, and again released. But this was the third time. So I have a bit of an image of being a conflict curator, yes. And um, uh, on, on one hand, there is, there is huge respect, because we are pioneering in the city, at the same time, when, when we when we started, it was also very weird what we were doing. It was, even in the funding, there was no structure to fund this hybrid art. There was funding for music, for theater, for dance, but not for this crossover disciplinary thing. Um, and now I see a clear difference, is that actually this form of art are becoming mainstream. The artists that we were programming 10 years ago are now doing their solos in Tate Modern, Norimoma. Um, So this field grew and and also our reputation grew in that sense. And and somehow we're highly respected, but we're seen a bit as enfant terrible, for sure.
1: (laughs) So let's bring things a little bit up to date. You are in the throes of preparing for the 14th edition of the festival. What are some of today's art themes, political or otherwise? What are you kind of addressing with this festival Yeah, this year we will... um, Last year it was a lot
2: about data and and, uh, amounts of data. Uh, Now we will go more in the direction of... um, um, We call it bubble visions. Um, There is so many parallel worlds, actually. Like, I realized when I was visiting Transmediale in the winter in Berlin, uh, the narrative was all uh, about fuck Google, fuck this, fuck that, from a very Western perspective. And uh, I started to realize, like, you know... This is completely irrelevant if you live in China because there is no Google in China or if you live in Dugu, or in, in a remote place. So, but, but still there is data and still there is a lot of technological, um, uh, improvement. We are inviting actually a lot of artists this year that are working on this field. Like, what is advertisement? What is, what is, uh, what is even democracy in, in these years of, or in these eras of data? and how far is this technology going to uh, integrate into our lives like will we come to a point where the machine will uh, take over our jobs um which i think it's it's we're very close from it but this is certain kind of jobs like everything which is repetitive what can be uh, this can be replaced uh, jobs that are around knowledge can also be replaced um you know a, a judge Uh, knows only what he read. Uh, A machine can combine everything that's being written. Same for a doctor. Uh, But creative jobs is a different thing. The machine has no creativity. So that's, um, I think actually that creativity and art uh, uh, have always been considered soft capital. You can even see in the, the budget cuts in 2012 this was what was was uh, the, the topics that were being cut because this is only costing more money to society. I think now we will uh, come to a shift and we will start to realize that creativity, interdisciplinary approach, interpretation of information, uh, is uh, is a key for the future. And uh, but therefore we need to change our education radically because that's still based on knowledge and it's still based on putting things in on your hard drive that are actually available somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fake news. We will for sure avoid the name Trump. I think it will be in, in oh. no text. And, uh, but it's, it's a lot about borders. Um, we have one panel. It's about creativity beyond borders. And uh, we will have all kinds kind of organizations that are working in remote places uh, uh, um, trying to build a future.
1: So that's the Discourse Programme. So now let's talk a bit about the music. I'm zeroing in straight to Friday's club performance with a very special Detroit uh, undercurrent. So you've got Underground Resistance presenting Depth Charge. Can you tell us a bit about this project and also tell us how you met Underground Resistance? Because you and Mike go way back, do you not? Yeah. Well, that's actually related to the... Uh, or I,
2: I met Underground Resistance when I was working with Kevin Sonderson uh, for Detroit's Electronic Music Festival. That was our second year of involvement, the year before we worked with Derek May. Uh, and how this happened is uh, I, I was uh, seeing Derek May here in in Amsterdam. Uh, he played somewhere and somehow we, we end up together at the bar and he was telling me about his festival in Detroit that was soon to happen and i asked him what's your program how is it structured and he told me that it was very complicated he took it over from carl craig and it was it was an artist-run festival There, there is no funding in the u.s like we have here and and it was a great concept but there was actually not a real strong business model behind it and i said can i help and he said, come to Detroit. And so I booked my ticket and I went to Detroit. And I remember the faces in his office because Derek is a very open person. He probably says it to many people. And they looked at me like, oh, fuck, there's another guy that comes up and kind of follows Derek and will come here with a bullshit story. But I told them, okay, we have possibilities to apply for funding. Let me work on it. And we were able to actually fund the whole stage
1: well, let's talk about the 2004, some of the artists that you brought over from The Hague. I'm looking at the flyer now. Yeah, I think it's not
2: art- only artists from The Hague. Uh, it's, it's actually Dutch artists yeah. because we got actually Dutch funding. Uh, um, but the funding was more for uh, travel, accommodation and also some production. Uh, but I didn't have any money for fees um and and the festival was also not selling tickets so i approached people who i knew were very detroit oriented in their music i mean this is a list um that is very much the clone list uh, lego Welt, nova man uh but we also wanted to have uh, a mix with, with detroit artists and um, the interesting thing is, uh, Derek, uh, when we were able to fund this stage, he gave us the, the underground stage at um, at Hart Plaza, which is a dark space. And then we, uh, we, from the cross-disciplinary approach, I said also, I want to have visuals there. Yeah. So I invited also a, cream, a, a team of uh, uh, VJs. Uh, back then, they were called Photonic. They don't exist anymore. But I made one mistake. Like I had a slot for every DJ, but I had only two two VJs for the whole weekend and they were like twenty-four hours VJing the whole time. They did something radical. They they printed black and white and they projected on the black and white with uh, distorted images. So it was it was super interesting um uh for Detroit and, and um the program was great. But I, I, I contacted all these artists and I said uh we have a possibility to, to uh play in Detroit. Uh, and everyone confirmed, and everyone went for free. Um, and I think this was the power also of Detroit's electronic music festival back then. It was almost like a Muslim going to Mecca. You would go to Detroit if you were in that music field. So with huge support from everyone, we had a, we had a, a, a crazy success. But um, um, you know, free festival. Um, uh, Derek uh, couldn't continue anymore, uh, and it was influenced or taking too much of his own career also. And then Kevin Sanderson said, "Okay, I'm gonna take it over." So he contacted me and he said, "Hey, you did some great work for Derek. Are you interested in collaborating with me?" I said, "Sure, I, I'm 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 on my way." <laughs> so I came, and, and uh, Kevin had his office at Submerge. Uh, where the, the, yeah, the, uh, where, where underground resistance is based. Um, so I was staying at Submerge. I was working from there and stayed a lot there. That's how I met Mike and, and Cornelius and the rest of the the crew. Um, and we did the second edition there. I, I was not too much more into having a stage, but it was more like trying to get sponsors and funding for the whole festival. I arranged a sponsor deal with Function One then that did the whole festival. Yeah, great experience, but again, you know, r- tough to organize in, in these uh, circumstances.
1: So you must have been quite an asset having this sort of uh, commercial experience and uh, experience with funding because from what I've read about this whole organization that it was very chaotic.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what do you expect? Touring yeah. artists uh, um, and, and uh, running a festival like this is a huge responsibility and there's a lot of money involved and uh, yeah... Yeah, I have to say that the city was was uh, very unsupportive. Also, um, it was almost like you know we would bring in funding from uh, from abroad, and they would almost try to tax it to get the funding back instead that they would go to the artists. But you know, still that 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 vibe that was around DMF. Uh, what I felt uh, so powerful then. It's like you know all these artists like Carl Craig, Jeff Mills, all these guys. Imagine, they have their career outside of Detroit. So their families, their community there, they have actually no idea what these guys are doing. And then once a year, there was this music festival where the rest of the world would come with highly high respect to what's happening there. So the backstage was always full of families, barbecuing. It was such a great atmosphere and such such a motivation to support and to work in something like this. So the year after... Uh, uh when yeah it, it 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 seemed completely undoable to organize it in such a way um then the city opened a, a bid or or did an open call and i think paxhow then came in and made more commercial model with ticketing i remember back then we had a bit of talks also with with mike uh can we do an alternative version uh next to it or because we thought that the ticketing was the 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 thing not to do in this festival it should remain a free festival really artist driven uh, no matter how hard uh, but yeah you know the, the whole point was also like I got involved but I, I also realized like yeah I'm this white kid from Europe in this, this African American community I don't want to be pushed forward as the one leading this festival so leave me please in the back and and uh, um, uh, I want to arrange uh, uh, things more on another level but I don't want to be the front man of this festival
1: so that that was in 2005 and I guess you ha- you and Mike have carried on a relationship sort of uh you told me last time and last year when we spoke that you went on tour with Underground Resistance Yeah we um you know I I
2: got really impressed by the whole attitude and the whole philosophy behind uh the music in Detroit and and not only in techno in in many Detroit is actually an amazing city for music. But um, the approach of Underground Resistance, so supportive to actually try to create an opportunity for kids uh, in, in their community to step out and to get a chance for an international career, that appealed very much to me. And um, of course, there was already, people knew about Underground Resistance. They they played at Tresor in Berlin and these kind of things. But um, I invited them to play uh, in the Netherlands and it was one of the... Uh, first time that they came, and it was I think they played in the part with Interstellar Fugitive, and we had a whole program: first uh, a screening uh, of a film, then artist talks, and then they were on stage. I think the whole techno world of Netherlands and, and Belgium came. I think if you would have dropped a bomb there, they, they wouldn't have been techno for another two years being <laughs> produced. Uh, but it was it was great. But there uh, there was also a bit of um, how to say not jealousy, but there were a lot of people that were like, but who, who is this guy who is suddenly inviting underground resistance here and, and taps into this network, and, uh, which is not in the field of clone and these type of things. But we invited them, huge success. The year after they came, this was the moment where they took off their masks for the first time here in The Hague. <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when they came here, they also saw a festival which was different. We still joke about this, but we, we had a a performance on, on the Grote Markt, an outdoor performance. Uh, and this was a concert with washing machines and ironing boards. And, uh, for them, this was, this was, this was so creative and they so loved it. Um, so every year they wanted to come back to also discover what we were presenting. Um, and since we were starting to work in this network of, of festivals also in Europe with, with CTM and these kind of things, a lot of people started to ask me, can you arrange Underground Resistance? So we went to Norway, we went to CTM, uh, we went to Mutek once together, we went to Romania.
1: Um. So, we're, so we're talking about ECAS, ICAS and now Shape network of festivals where there's... Um That's all European based festivals. There's another one called We Are Europe, which. Yeah, so all the, all these networks. And I think,
2: um, you know, a a festival like Today's Art and, and many of us, these independent festivals, um, we uh, always have a lot of collaborations. And, and I think this is also the power of it. Um, it, it's quite a, um, actually a small scene internationally. Uh, And we realized that it it makes a lot of sense to collaborate, to develop our artists, to develop our audiences, and and sometimes also to help each other with funding. Some have access, some not. Um, So it started first a bit informally, um, then out of all these informal networks where we started to invite each other, uh, we saw a possibility to apply uh, at uh, the European uh, government and um, we tried one year, it didn't work. Second year, it didn't work. And then suddenly, boom, we had funding. And this was the, the first network was called ECAS, uh, European Cities of Advanced Sound. And we had a budget for three years, uh, with 12 festivals. CTM was in there, Future Everything in Manchester, Insomnia in Tromso, uh, Unsound was in there. Uh, but we, again, we made all the mistakes we could, uh, financially, and we, we all lost quite some money in this, in these projects, but we realized, okay, th- this collaboration is interesting. And these collaborations even went beyond just our European networks. Uh, organizations like Mutek started to tap in. And then we created a network, uh, a bit bigger than that. It's ICAS instead of ECO. So International Cities of Advanced Sound. This remained informal. There was no financial relations in between. But the group who started ACAS, um, after this project was finished, uh, looked for another uh, possibility to collaborate. And based on the experience, we thought, okay, let's make something very simple in structure. And that's how SHAPE was uh, uh, initiated. SHAPE is uh, 16 festivals uh, collaborating for three years. Every year, we make a list of uh, three artists per festival. So that's a list of 40, 50 artists. And my commitment to this list is that I have to program at least nine of them. It's emerging artists, so it's it's also really great for developing these careers of uh, of these artists because they, they are sure that if they are on this list that they will have at least a couple of gigs around uh, super cool festivals in Europe. And once a year we do a presentation outside of the EU. Uh, once we did at MUTEC in Montreal. Last year we were, uh, in, in, in Rio, in Brazil. Uh, and this year we're going to Africa, to Uganda, to the Nyege festival with, with 16 artists and, and, 16 festivals. So, uh, yeah, super interesting to work on, on, uh, on this field and on, uh, trying to do these kind of things. The third network is, is a bit different. Um, it's not so much on the emerging artists. It's more the bigger collaborations. This is called We Are Europe. This is eight festivals. Uh, in this one, we are by far one of the smallest, uh, because this is including Sonar in Barcelona and Visonor, CO Pop in Köln, WeWorks in, uh, in Greece, uh, Elevate in uh, Austria. Uh, Insomnia is in there, and and what's interesting is, you know, in this network we we try to do the bigger collaborations, the bigger tours. Um, One of the examples is we had our own stage at Sonar two years ago, Uh, and we commissioned anti Vijay and Doppler effect with a new project, it was premiered there. Uh, But the interesting of this network is you have a, a, a very big organization like Sonar. Uh, And you have an organization like Insomnia in Tromsø, Norway, run by volunteers. Uh, But still this network, it, it functions amazingly. We finished the first cycle and we just heard that we have another three years of funding from the EU, so this will develop even further.